following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. So we've been discussing the nature of consciousness in the past few weeks, specifically how it applies to the science of meditation, the practice of introspection, of knowing oneself. We explained that consciousness is a form of light, of perceiving, of understanding, and of knowing qualified by the virtues of the soul mentioned in every religion. Contentment, peace, understanding, as well as altruism, generosity, and genuine knowledge of the divine mysteries. So we're explaining how consciousness can be developed, can be expanded. Those virtuous qualities that are intrinsic to our true nature can be developed if we work intentionally in a day-to-day discipline and a moment-to-moment effort. The science of meditation is precisely the means by which we learn to comprehend the obstacles within our psyche, which create suffering for ourselves. We talked about the conditioning elements of fear, resentment, hatred, pride, and that these conditions trap really the essence of who we are, our consciousness, our soul. Meditation is precisely how we learn to go in to our mind, to see our faults, to eliminate resentment, which has made many lives bitter, envy, greed, Fear. Those psychological conditions trap the energy of our perception and make us vibrate at a very low level of being. It's easy to analyze and see that we carry many of these psychological conditions inside of us and which make us vibrate and suffer within low states of consciousness, inferior states of being. 
So we explain how the body, our physicality, needs food. It needs nourishment. It needs water. It needs food. It needs air. Likewise, the consciousness needs a type of nourishment in order for it to grow intentionally. Because consciousness as it is needs to be exercised. It needs to be trained. And if we're honest, we can see that by a few minutes of reflection, of examining our mind, we find that we are distracted with memories, with daydreams, with thoughts. Thinking about what we're going to do later in the day or what we did. Never being present within our body, within our mind, where we're at, what we're doing. Just as the body needs food and nourishment, likewise the consciousness needs its food. That food of the soul is precisely comprehending what produces our pain, our suffering, that which afflicts us most, which makes us miserable. And any person who approaches meditation or religion wants to understand how to see suffering, how to cease being in pain. We talked about the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. Now, the first truth is that in life, there is suffering. The second also, that there, that there are causes to suffering. But also the third truth, that there exists a means to cease suffering. And that path, the fourth truth, is meditation. So Samael and Vior, the founder of the modern Gnostic tradition, stated that meditation is the daily bread of the wise. Precisely because the food of our consciousness, that which is going to feed us and give us a genuine sense of peace, is by reflecting within and understanding the cages we have built the conditions we have put around ourselves. And of course, this is not an easy reflection to make because when we discover that inside of us we carry many elements which are difficult, painful, when we truly comprehend that anger, fear, desire, lust, these horrify the psyche. These, these, in truth, these elements make us realize very profoundly that we, quit, we carry many elements that can qualify us as demonic. Because a being that is perfect, that has no fault, no blemish, no sense of I, of what I want, of what I crave, these beings have been known by the name of masters, Buddhas, angels, prophets, no matter what religion, what language they spoke. In their heart, they all taught how to meditate, how to understand the conditions that make us suffer, so that by comprehending them, we can break those shells. And by breaking anger, resentment, gluttony, laziness, we free that part of our consciousness which we Put in that place. And like the genie from Aladdin's lamp, when it, the shell is broken, we produce the, the miracles of the soul, the beauty of the consciousness, the beauty of understanding.
So comprehension is precisely when we as a consciousness understand what ego is, what this sense of self is, me, what I want, what I crave, what I desire, from moment to moment, day by day. So comprehension is by understanding that this sense of self, my thoughts, my heritage, my language, my race, my beliefs, this sense of self is a form of suffering. It grasps at the exterior world, wanting to satisfy desire. And that is a condition. It is a cage. Because the consciousness, when it is purified, when it is free of conditions, is at peace. It doesn't mean that by eliminating desire, we are zombies, like dead people, without any feeling. Because really, in truth, the consciousness, when it is freed of anger, vibrates with love for humanity, love for divinity. When we eliminate lust, sexual desire, we develop the virtues of chastity, of purity, which does not mean abstention from sex, but approaches one's spouse with a sense of beauty, of harmony, of true love and compassion. So it takes great heroism to look in ourselves and to see that we are the only ones responsible for creating our suffering. It takes tremendous courage, precisely because we take responsibility for our actions. And if you see in this image, we have Perseus with the head of Medusa. Perseus is a myth of how the consciousness must go to war against negativity, against affliction. He is precisely our soul, like David and Goliath, and many other myths that teach about the battle that is waged in the soul for its redemption. Perseus is holding the head of the, of the Gorgon, the Medusa, who is a representation of our own negativity, our ego, our sense of self that we feed. And if you remember the myth, Medusa has a head of many snakes, many vipers, which are a representation of the multiplicity of de desire, of our defects. So the seven capital sins, as well as the legion of defects that we carry within, is each represented by a serpent in that head. And to look directly into the eyes of the Medusa in the myth, turn men into stone. Many people think about this myth literally. But the real meaning is that when we identify our consciousness with any desire, with any defect, we become petrified. We become conditioned. We become shelled. Because obviously when we are in a moment of anger with a loved one or a boss or coworker, and we vibrate with anger, resentment, with hatred, all of our energy is going into that desire. And that desire only wants to harm. There's nothing rational about anger even though many people in our current day and age justify it. It's a negative quality. It's a demonic quality. And that energy that is trapped in anger makes us very poor people, psychologically, very weak. And when we look at that anger, and in a moment of observation, we can see that we are burning with that fire, but there is a path that leads out of that type of negativity. 
And that precisely is represented in the myth of Perseus. Now, he knew that by looking directly into the eyes of Medusa, he would become stone. And that is a representation of our habits. So day by day, we have certain habits we indulge in. Some good, some bad. But meditation is a means. Self-reflection is a means by which we learn to comprehend the Medusa and not to identify ourselves with that anger, with that fear, with that problem. So the way he overcomes that animality in himself is by using his shield. So he uses the reflection of the shield to see the image of the, the Gorgon, the beast, and with his sword, decapitates it. So these are symbols. These are stories that teach us psychological truth. Precisely because that shield, the reflection in the mirror of that, uh, of that armor, is precisely the act of observing. To see our ego, our defect, without getting carried away by it. Without investing our energy into that element. So this is a struggle that we face moment by moment in which certain defects emerge. We are observing ourselves, becoming aware that certain thoughts, certain emotions, certain negativities, we're focusing all our energy and, and power inside to look at what is going on psychologically. So as we explained in our previous lecture, the light of consciousness, that is the path of self-observation, observing one's psyche, one's mind, one's emotional states, one's impulses in the body to act. And that act of introspection is light understanding. And we experience genuine joy when we realize that we are not anger. And that if we don't give that anger what it wants, we free energy. We can become strong. As Muhammad said in the famous oral tradition of Islam, the strongest among you is he who controls his anger. So this is the path of the dialectic of consciousness. This self-reflection is precisely the path of the revolution of our, of our dialectic. You could say it's a way of thinking. This term has been used in the Greek mysteries, founded by Plato and perpetuated by Aristotle. Dialectic means discussion and reasoning by dialogue as a method to resolve disagreement and reveal the truth. So the word dialectic has many interesting etymological meanings which can help us understand this topic more deeply. It's from the old French dialectique from the 12th century or dialectica or in the Greek dialectike, the art of philosophical discussion or discourse. The word dialectic was usually associated with the word dialogue and the word dia, the prefix, simply means Thoroughly, from side to side, which intensifies logos, logic, understanding. So what is dialogue or dialectic? It is the ability to understand with the reasoning of the consciousness, the understanding of the soul, that which limits us. So the word dia means from side to side. And dialogos refers to how we develop the power of divinity inside. 
Logos. So the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, Logos. The Word was with God, Logos, and the Word was God, Logos. That mantra we did at the beginning of this exercise, the mantra Inri, is a mantra to invoke the Lord, the divine, the Logoic energy from the cosmos into our mind so that we can develop a type of reasoning that is superior. Because our anger has this reasoning, it's logic, it's concepts. It thinks a certain way, it feels a certain way, and it wants to act in a certain way at the detriment of our neighbor. However, dialogue, dialectic, is to stand, move side to side, to not be limited by one's thought, to not be identified with those egotistical elements. And also this is what we're doing in these type of lectures. We are seeking to understand what is consciousness by learning to uh, have a dialogue, to learn from lectures. And traditionally, the word dialectic in academia has been associated with presenting a thesis, presenting an antithesis, in order to arrive at a synthesis, the unification, the superior meaning. So the ego has a sense of logic, a type of logic, such as the feelings of resentment. He hurt me. He betrayed me. Or desire that says, I need to satisfy my desire. I want to be with that person. Or fear. The logic of, I need to pay my bills. I need to please my boss so I don't get fired. I need to do this, this, and that to take care of my needs. That's a form of logic. But if we examine and look inside with the consciousness, we see that logic comes from a condition, a negativity. And if we give our energy to that thought, that feeling, that impulse, we are staring into the eyes of Medusa. We become petrified in that element. But self-observation, the work of the spiritual warrior, the meditator, uses the shield, the reflection in the mirror, which is self-observation, looking at the psyche, in order to use the sword of insight, of wisdom, of spirituality, of supreme spiritual methods, in order to decapitate that element. So in this type of dialectic with ourselves, we are expanding our logic, meaning our understanding of who we are as a consciousness, precisely by moving from side to side, thoroughly, to go thoroughly into the mind, but also not being limited by any type of ego, any type of self, which is negative. So this is how we arrive at a truth, a synthesis, an understanding, which is the nature of consciousness. Now, what's interesting is that Certain philosophers talked about the limits of the intellect, of logic, of reasoning. In these studies, we do not denounce understanding, intelligence, but the subjective logic of hatred, of pain, of desire. So, Immanuel Kant gave a very interesting understanding about the nature of the logic of the mind, which is the logic of the ego, the intellect. He explained what, in what is known as the antinomy of reason that you can have, and this is in terms of philosophical studies, 
two completely different arguments. One saying that there is God, the other that there is no God. And you can present your evidence for both reasons and that it can be both valid according to logic. The reason I bring this up is because Immanuel Kant pointed out the limitations of the intellect, the limitations of the mind. That the mind can think and theorize and believe what it wants, especially about who we are psychologically, and yet there is no change. Likewise, many schools and movements have many beliefs about what is consciousness, what is not consciousness, what is God. Does God exist? Some say yes, some say no. You have a thesis and an antithesis. This is the nature of the mind, the intellect. It does not know the truth, the divine. However, by understanding with our perception who we are psychologically, we can understand whether there is divinity or not. And those who have experienced in meditation and have broken free from the limitations of the mind develop the dialectic of the consciousness, the logic of the consciousness, which is an understanding that is devoid of desire, of thinking that I'm thinking, of feeling that I'm feeling, of just acting and reacting to life mechanically. So by arriving at that synthesis, we have genuine peace. We understand from our experience the limitations of the mind. And then we understand from meditation how the forms of logic that perpetuate sarcasm, like on TV shows, anger, violence, resentment, all these defects, have a type of reasoning that people worship. You see that in this current age, in this society, we worship Medusa. It's enough to look on television and the news and that humanity to see that people's dialectic, people's reasoning is egotistical, is negative. However, by seeing that, we recognize it, we can do something to change. But precisely that revolution of our thinking occurs through meditation by understanding that thinking is not going to resolve anything. Instead, understanding will. Comprehension. These are qualities of consciousness, of seeing, perceiving. Because the intellect can justify, can say, I know that I have anger and fear and pain and resentment and all these things. And yet we continue to engage in those habits and behaviors that perpetuate our suffering. So this is why we talk about dialectic, reasoning, logic. We have many excuses and uh, beliefs about who we are, ideas, and yet those are egotistical. If we look inside and we're observing as a consciousness what our thinking is, what our ways of behaving are, we develop a superior type of understanding, which is the focus of this lecture. So this type of observation of oneself is a type of revolution. And we see here an image from the Ghent altarpiece. This is a Virgin Mary reading a book. That book is our own life. We have many chapters, many passages, many defects that we have to study to see, to perceive, to comprehend, so that by comprehending them, we can go beyond those limitations. So as I explained, we live in very degenerate times. I believe on the news today, this morning, there was a terrorist attack in London, and there's other many issues that are occurring with our humanity, which are very discouraging. 
However, by learning to meditate on ourselves and to transform those elements that produce such violence, we can help to be a more effective change for others. So this type of work is a revolution of our thinking. It means to go beyond thought. So in our practice, we began observing ourselves, becoming aware of our thinking, the memories, the daydreams, the thoughts, which tend to surge like, a, like clouds. They emerge, they sustain upon the screen of our awareness, and then they pass. And so this type of work is about deepening that attention in order to take the consciousness that is trapped in ego, in defect, desire, so that the whole consciousness can be integrated. So Samayan Vayor wrote in The Revolution of the Dialectic, in these decrepit and degenerate times, a revolution of the dialectic, a self-dialectic, and a new education are necessary. So we talked about the meaning of dialectic. And here we see that a self-dialectic precisely means that knowledge we acquire about ourselves through observation, through perception. So we do not need to read any book, any scripture, any other teaching in order to understand who we are. Fundamentally, those type of writings are helpful. They're beneficial, such as the scriptures of, the, of Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism. Comes to my mind uh, a very famous philosopher and thinker by the name of Krishnamurti, who is a very profound master with a lot of light. He studied Buddhism especially, but you find that his explanations and his understanding was not based on book knowledge. It was just based on what he observed in himself and how he liberated his consciousness. So he had self-dialectic, self-understanding, self-comprehension, which he was able to share with others in a very profound way. And so we need a new education, meaning methods and means that are going to aid us in breaking the shells of our conditions. So in the age of the revolution of the dialectic, the art of reasoning must be handled directly by our inner being in order for it to be methodical and just. So this type of revolution is not by going to the exterior world and trying to change things through policies, through politics, all these external matters which we've seen from history and experience don't do anything. But if we want to see suffering, we have to look inside and change what we can perceive. And the being is the Gnostic term we use in this school to refer to divinity, our inner God. Now, this is not some anthropomorphic old man in the clouds with a beard and long hair who sits in the cloud of tyranny dispensing lightning bolts to this poor humanity. The being is not anthropomorphic, but is energy, is light. And that being is precisely our true nature, our true self, but not egotistical, not subjective. So the art of reasoning, the mind, must be controlled, handled by our inner being, in order for our mind to be just, because our mind, our thoughts, affect other people. If we're observant, we can see that certain thinking and certain ideas or certain habits affect other people at work or at home, etc., our thinking shapes our life. 
So that mind must be controlled, must be disciplined through meditation so that it can be serene in a natural equanimous state. So this is an art of objective reasoning that will provide a pedagogical and integral change. So in this lecture, we're talking about objective reasoning, meaning understanding, without having to think about something. We simply know. That's the distinction between thought and comprehension. So pedagogy has to do with the way we instruct others by our example, through our ethics, our, our way of being. All the actions of our life must be the outcome of an equation and an exact formula in order for the possibilities of the mind and the functionalism of understanding to search for it. So this inner divinity called the being, we've been explaining in our recent lectures on the Tarot, relate to divine principles relating to numbers, mathematics, which is a topic of another discussion. But we can see that in a moment of observation in which we truly let our inner God act through us, his actions are mathematical. Her compassion is precise in all our interactions of life. So it is like a formula. It's formulaic. It's precise. Definite. And those qualities are well mentioned in certain schools of meditation, which we study. In this image we have Christ being tempted by the devil, which is a symbol of something psychological. How we as a consciousness who must unite with the divine energy known as Christ is opposing the mind, which is represented by the devil. So people believe in these figures as something external, but what's more interesting is that they represented something psychological for us. So in that exercise, we're invoking the Christic energy into the mind, precisely so that we can overcome the temptations of our egotism, the logic of hatred, of sarcasm, of fear. Christ is a form of understanding or mind which is superior. And in this dialogue between him and the devil in the desert represents something we all experience when we genuinely attempt meditation. We face that temptation of the mind wanting to distract us, to give us what we want or desire, filling the mind with certain elements which surge and, and uh, churn constantly. But as this parable or this myth teaches us, um, by working with that energy, we can, and by being serene, concentrated, not identified with the mind, obviously the devil and the myth falls. Because it, I believe the lines from the Gospels was, uh, Tempt not the Lord thy God. Meaning the soul has been united and identified with, with the divine. And therefore the mind becomes still, falls. And the devil falls in the myth down a precipice or down a tower. Represents how the mind is conquered, is serene. This also represents how our concepts of life do not equate with the reality of life. And our concepts, meaning our thinking, tends to be very limited. We can rationalize all we want about uh, meditation, divinity, but what gives us true comfort and, and knowledge 
is our own experience, which is the dialectic of consciousness. As Samael and Vior wrote in The Great Rebellion, awakened consciousness allows us to experience reality directly. Unfortunately, the intellectual animal, mistakenly called a human being, fascinated by the formulating power of dialectical logic, has forgotten about the dialectic of the consciousness. Unquestionably, the power to formulate logical concepts certainly becomes terribly poor. From thesis, we go on to antithesis, and through discussion to synthesis. But the latter remains in itself an intellectual concept which can never coincide with reality. So how does this apply to us? Obviously, this is related to schools and philosophical movements and religions and ways of thinking. We can think all we want and believe what we want, but does that necessarily change our way of being, how we act, whether our actions are truly beneficial or limited or detrimental for humanity? So we can think all we want about who we are. We have, tend to have many concepts and beliefs. This is my race, my religion, my family, my school that I grew up in, my, my university diploma. These are concepts, ideas. But what is the reality of our state of being? Do we truly understand the origins of our defects? Of laziness, of despair, and that whole conglomeration of errors. Because by understanding the root psychologically of those conditions, we can change them. So the dialectic of consciousness is more direct, permitting us to experience the reality of any phenomenon in and of itself. So those who learn to meditate obviously learn to have certain mystical experiences which are mentioned in the different religions. Some people refer to this as astral projection, dream yoga, in which the consciousness free of the physical body experiences the realities of the dream world or the fifth dimension. And this is all very beautifully mapped out in what is known as the Kabbalah, the tree of light. So we can investigate any phenomena in nature. We put the body at rest, we relax, we silence the mind, we observe ourselves, we concentrate on our, on our inner divinity, begging him, begging her to give us that wisdom we seek. So we focus on having, perhaps, projecting into the astral dimension. And then with certain discipline and practice, certain exercises that we utilize, the body goes to rest and we enter those dimensions. And we can investigate and see things that are beyond the physical senses. And if personally, if I'm teaching you this, it's because I've been doing this for years. And so I want to help my students experience the realities of the consciousness. It's not just limited to physical matter but you can experience dimensions that are not material in the physical sense, in which the religion is called heavens. But also you can investigate the infra dimensions or what is known as hell, hell realms. Because one thing we mentioned also is that your state of consciousness, your level of being, your state of mind, determines if you vibrate with superior laws or inferior laws. Simple cause and effect. And so by learning to meditate and eliminate conditions of mind, we vibrate at higher levels of being, higher laws, so that we can naturally investigate the phenomena of nature, anything. And that's the beauty of the consciousness, because it has the capacity to expand to an infinite degree, as the uh, 14th Dalai Lama has instructed us. 
So intellectual delusion is fascinating. And we want to force all natural phenomena to coincide with our dialectical logic. So people believe many things, again, intellectually, about the universe, the solar system, our nature. And we want everything to fit into our theories, our ideas, our beliefs, our habits. More importantly for us, this has to do with our own understanding of who we are. This is the most profound form of delusion. We think we're a certain way, and yet the reality is, in certain situations, we keep provoking conflicts. We can all think of examples of this. We think a certain way, we have a certain opinion, we have a disagreement with a friend or a stranger, and we want to force everything we're perceiving about our neighbor in our logic. That person doesn't like me, that person's resentful, that person is this, this, and that. And yet the very qualities that we attribute to other human beings, other persons, are precisely the qualities we carry within. So we tend to live in delusion. We don't understand, really, the sources of our problems, where our defects come from, where our habits originated. We tend to go through life very hypnotized, identified with external phenomena, becoming fascinated. A new job, a new house, a new car, whatever it may be. And we want to fit everything into our logic about who we think we are. But real courage occurs when we as the consciousness learn to face the mind and not to be tempted by it. We look at it, the mind, just see it for what it is. Where do our thoughts come from? Our feelings, our impulses. Simply look at it. Don't judge one way or the other, but observe. And that's how you gain information about that type of psychological phenomena inside. That is why the dialectic of a consciousness is based on true life experiences and not on mere subjective rationalism. So that dialectic of consciousness is when we experience by fact the reality that our mind tends to be fractured, is split. But by observing that fact, we gain strength because we see that we are not the mind. We're something more profound. So there's a Sufi master by the name of Ibn Arabi. He's the mystic of Islam, considered one of the greatest teachers of that tradition. He wrote a very interesting excerpt from a, a book called Divine Governance of the Human Kingdom which kind of builds off of what I just mentioned to you about the science of dream yoga, awakening in the internal worlds when your physical body is asleep, but you as a consciousness are acting and moving in a different dimension. And typically people who go to sleep at night are knocked out for eight hours and they wake up in the morning. They may have some memories of dreams or usually nothing. That's a barometer for how conscious we are. Because if your consciousness is very awake, is disciplined in meditation, you can converse in those dimensions with the angels, with the Buddhas, with the masters, like Jesus, Buddha, etc. In this quote, he also talks about the nature of perception, how it's not intellectual. Descartes' theory that I think, therefore I am, is wrong. To think is not to be. We're thinking about our friend, our co-workers, our spouse, when we're driving our car. We're not paying attention at what we're doing. We're not being in the present moment. It means we're asleep. The consciousness is not active. It's lost in thinking and daydreams. And so we think we see with our eyes. The information, the influences of perception are due to our senses. While the real influence, the meaning of things, 
the power behind what sees and what is seen, can be reached neither by the senses, nor by deduction and analysis, comparison, contrasts, and associations made through intellectual theories. The invisible world can only be penetrated by the eye and the mind of the heart. So knowledge is of the intellect, but being, divinity, consciousness, is more of the heart. Understanding is in the core of our, of our being, of our, of our emotional center. Because when you truly intuit something and know something profoundly, it's ingrained in you. It's permanent. The mind can wander and think what it wants, but when you know something from fact, from experience, that's unshakable. Such as having an experience in the astral plane where you are talking face-to-face with a master. Personally, I've done that many times where I've been speaking with uh, the founder of the Nasser tradition, Samael and Vior, as well as certain uh, initiates who have been helping me, especially because I'm trying to teach others how to experience that. And so it's not a theory for me. I don't believe in anything. I don't believe in it. It's something I do as a consciousness because I'm meditating daily and training my mind so that I can continue to get guidance about how to live my life. So the invisible world, the higher dimensions are known by the qualities of the heart, your ethics. So by eliminating anger, lust, hatred, fear, you expand consciousness. You inflame your heart as represented by the sacred image of Jesus. So his heart was constricted by a crown of thorns. This is a very famous uh, icon in Christian thought. And the thing is with this is that it's a symbol of how we have to wear our own crown of thorns, which is obviously a, a symbol of restraining the mind and negative qualities in the heart. And it's a type of willpower one needs. When you sit to meditate, willpower is needed because we find that the mind wanders. It gets distracted. It won't stay in one thing for a long time in the beginning. But with practice and by going through a type of conflict in oneself, one learns to inflame the heart with understanding. And that occurs by restraining the mind and giving it what it wants. Again, saving your energies, mentally, emotionally, physically. So the invisible world can only be penetrated by the eye and the mind of the heart. Because the consciousness awakens by working with energy. And as we emphasized in the beginning of our practice, this mantra, Inri, helps to fill us with, with fire, with power. And with energy, you learn, and by saving energy, mentally, emotionally, physically, we expand consciousness. So indeed, the reality of this visible world also can only be seen by the mind and the eye and the heart. And again, if we want to understand the source of our problems in our daily existence, meditation is a means, a method to understand ourselves. Some of you who have been to my lectures previously uh, see that I I like to use a lot of different scriptures and writings. Uh, This is a tradition that I very much have a lot of respect for as compared to the orthodox extremist beliefs. This is a scripture from the uh, book of Sufism, which is a mystical teaching of Islam. And this tradition, of course, is very degenerated today. It's, It's been abused of its original meaning. But if we look at some of the symbols and principles of this tradition, we can extract knowledge for our benefit. And we emphasize in our school that all religions have one source. 
Whether they've deviated from that is another thing. So there's a scripture called Principles of Sufism. This is a, a writing by Al-Kushari, great Sufi master, who inspired Rumi. If you're familiar with the poet Rumi, his power evidently came from studying this, this other master. One thing that is mentioned in this scripture is very important about the need for a type of spiritual discipline. Because true experience and the ability to have those type of uh, experiences in the internal worlds is dependent upon our practice. So it's a very practical method. Some island video wrote the following. It is completely impossible to experience the being, the innermost, the reality, the divine, without becoming true technical and scientific masters of that mysterious science called meditation. It is completely impossible to experience the being, the innermost, the reality, without having reached the true mastery of the quietude and silence of the mind. This is from the spiritual power of sound. The Sufis corroborate what he says, meaning that through daily discipline one can experience the divine, can expand awareness. Al-Jawari said that whoever does not establish awe of duty and vigilance in his relationship to the divine will not arrive at disclosure of the unseen or contemplation of the divine. So what is this awe of duty? It has to do with our daily meditative practice. To feel a sense of awe and reverence every time we sit to reflect in ourselves. Because we understand that through this exercise we're going to come closer to our inner being, our true nature. And also to feel that sense of urgency that we need to change and therefore we need to act. To feel that inquietude, that disturbance in the heart that pushes us to want to know really what religion teaches in in its heart. To experience it. Because through vigilance, observing ourselves, becoming aware of ourselves, not letting the consciousness go to sleep, we in turn develop a relationship with our inner divinity, our innermost God. And that's personal for each one of us. Very profound. So vigilance, meaning like in a vigil, you don't sleep. You pray all night. You don't let your body go to rest, but perform some types of austerities. This is one public level of meaning. But real vigilance is when you are, again, as I said, driving your car, but you're not thinking of other things. You're doing what you're doing, being attentive. So by developing vigilance and awe of duty, we obtain real knowledge. By daily discipline is how we truly train our mind to be serene, to be calm, to be peaceful. Because those who don't will not arrive to disclosure of the unseen. And this has to do with having experiences in meditation, but also in dream yoga. To disclose the unseen is also, the, the, another translation says, to unveil. So when you unveil the mysteries is when you're meditating, your body's at peace, your mind is calm, and then you receive an experience, like a lightning bolt. It could be an image, a sound, a scene in which you are a living spectator and also a participant. It can be a dream experience where you are seeing yourself doing certain actions or having certain types of uh, interactions that are symbolic. That's unveiling, to tear the veil of the mysteries, to see from the internal dimensions certain qualities of consciousness. 
But it's not enough just to unveil or to have those experiences. It's important to understand what they are teaching you because your inner divinity will teach you in meditation and in experience, through experiences certain symbols. And many people in this day and age are very fascinated with dream symbology and want to get certain books to teach them, well, I had a dream about this and this. I want to read it and look, look at what it means. And uh, in this tradition, we don't rely on those type of, uh, those type of books because the real um, method of understanding our dreams and experiences comes by meditating. When you meditate and you read scriptures and understand certain symbols, it's easy to interpret things. But relying on other people's opinions is uh, not a guarantee that you, know, you can read about certain books, etc. But I found more effective for my own practices to not read any book, but just go and meditate on the experience until the understanding surges forth. And when we have the experiences, we learn to understand what they mean. As the Bible teaches, a dream not interpreted is like a letter unread. So contemplating the meaning of our experiences is known as mushahida in Arabic. This is the word witnessing, to witness. And if you're familiar with Islam, they do the shahida, which is the declaration of their faith in the public level. La ilaha illa Allah, Muhammadun Rasul Allah. There is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet. People recite that many times, but do they really understand what it means is another thing. Because when you say that you've witnessed God, it means that you've been meditating and then you as a consciousness had the experience of uniting with your being. And you as a, you are witnessing the, the ecstasy of your soul united with that truth, with that purity. That is to be a witness, to perceive, to be awake. It doesn't mean just thinking that I, I believe in this tradition or I believe in Jesus I believe in Samael and Vior, thinking that, you know, that belief is going to guarantee anything. Instead, it's having the experience. That's witnessing. And so when you have those experiences, your heart becomes inflamed, precisely because you've seen the truth for yourself and you, and you know that you're not alone. So we talk about four states of consciousness in this tradition from the Greek mysteries. And in the spirit of this doctrine of the dialectic of consciousness, we've been talking a bit about the Greeks in terms of their language and etymology. So we can say there are four types of dialectic, four types of being. We have ikasia, which is profound sleep. We have pistis, which is sleep with dreams. And we have dianoia, awakened consciousness, followed by nous, Spiritually illuminated consciousness. Humanity tends to be stuck in the first two forms of consciousness, which is sleep or sleep with dreams. People in these times believe that they're awake. We tend to have this belief that we are conscious. But when you practice meditation, and if you analyze your eight hours of sleep at night, whether or not you're awake in the dream world, that's a barometer for how awake we are, really. Typically, we tend to be sleeping for eight hours and there's nothing. That's sleep, ikasia. And pistis, sleep with dreams, has to do with uh, not only just the dreams we experience at night, but in our daily state. As I mentioned to you, when you're at work or you're washing your dishes but thinking of other things, it means we're dreaming. We're not awake. 
We're not aware of what we're doing. We're just going mechanically with, the, with, our, with our habits, our actions. And so i like to relate to you some of the etymology of these, these Greek words because ekasia, pistis, dianoia, nous, they're Greek words, but they have a lot of meaning if you really break them down. Ekasia literally means imagination. It means images from the Greek ikonon. Now, I mentioned to you that we tend to be asleep or that we are asleep physically as a consciousness. Physically, our body's active, but if the mind is wandering, if we're not aware of what's going on, it means that we're uh, experiencing sleep without dreams. This is a very barbaric form of consciousness that is very negative. All the violence that you see on television, the wars, the bloodshed, that's ikasia to be unconscious. Because someone who's awakened spiritually would never dare to harm another human being, would never inflict violence. So ikasia means imagination. And the word imagination simply means to perceive images. And how is that else a representation of what we're going through now? We perceive images in life, physically, and yet we're not aware of what we're seeing. We're not questioning what we see. We just go with the flow. And this is very easy to see when, at the end of your day, you reflect and try to remember what you did at certain points in the day. If you can't remember those certain periods of time in which maybe you got up at morning and you're driving your car, you don't remember where you drove or what you did. We, get, we have gaps in our memory. We say, I don't remember what, what happened. What you're thinking, what you're doing, what you're, what you're uh, feeling. That's ikasia, unconsciousness. Pistis is a little different. It's not really much better. This is sleep with dreams. From the Greek, uh, pisteo, meaning to trust, to have confidence, faithfulness, to be reliable, to assure. Pistis simply means belief or faith. But in the subjective sense, as I've been explaining to you, to believe that by following Jesus when is saved is really superficial. We also believe in many, and trust many things. We, find, we put our faith and our confidence in many, uh, many things that are not reliable, whether institutions, traditions, etc., religions. But also we experience pistis, we dream. As I said, when we're, again, thinking, acting, and doing other things, but not being aware of where we're at. And we put our trust in our thinking and our feeling, our impulses. We invest our energy. That's pistis. Dianoia is much different. It means the awakened state of consciousness. The word dia means, again, thoroughly from side to side which intensifies noia or noose, which means mind. So dianoia is when you step out of the cage of your intellect, when you perceive that you are not the mind. You engage your mind thoroughly, examine it. And as a consciousness, you are evaluating yourself, your habits, in meditation and through the day, through self-observation. So this is to be awake, to not identify with any phenomena outside or inside but to be conscious. Nous is much superior. This is to be spiritually illuminated. It's not only when you are not identified with your mind, but you as a consciousness unite with your inner God, your being, who you are in your essence, fundamentally. Nous 
was, and these four states were represented by uh, the allegory of the cave of Plato. Obviously, the cave represents the darkness of the mind, in which, in this myth, the allegory of philosophy is such that a certain person was chained with other prisoners in a cave, but was released by some guru or master and taken out in order to experience the stars, the landscape, the mountains, nature, and also to see the sun rise for the first time. It's in condensed form, that's a symbol of how we escape the darkness of our intellect, our subconsciousness, our desires, in order to experience illumination. When you as a soul experience your true nature, your being. And so, obviously, this is the goal. And you can have that experience by daily discipline and meditation, where you are not only awake as a consciousness, but you experience what your inner divinity is, which is plenitude, happiness, contentment. But in order to get to that point, we learn to examine our psychological states. As I've been indicating, interactions with humanity, with other human beings, other people, is our psychological training. Because in those moments of interaction, we learn to see the conditions that truly shape us and limit us. So by learning to be observant of our psychological states and our interactions with humanity, we learn to understand and discover our secret faults, our errors. It also gives us the opportunity to develop virtue, real conscious action, beautiful action, in which our soul and our divinity expresses through us. We become a vehicle of enlightenment. And people who want to separate due to despair or what other qualities from the external events of life because they feel so uh, lost in suffering. They uh, demonstrate their incapacity to live. So meditation is precisely the means by which we learn to live more consciously, with rectitude, with ethics. When one wants to separate external events from the internal states of consciousness, one demonstrates concretely his incapacity for, of existing in a dignified manner. Those who learn how to consciously combine external events with internal states march on the path of success. So instead of blaming our job, the, the politicians, or whomever, we take responsibility for our own suffering. Because if we didn't have anger, we wouldn't suffer. Likewise with pride and all these elements. And then by learning to develop virtue, we help humanity and help ourselves. So our psychological state determines our life. This is well known within Sufism. And the Sufis talk about three types of blessing, three types of actions or principles which are at the heart of understanding ourselves and of meditation. They refer to what is known as traditionally Islam, which means in Arabic submission. doesn't mean to physically adhere to some type of tradition, to say I believe in Muhammad and and that there is only one God, to pray five times a day. That's very superficial. It's habitual. But meditation is something more profound. When you submit to God, your divinity, it means that you no longer perform harmful action. So people complain, and we've had many letters write to us, the missionaries, asking us, I don't experience God. I haven't seen my inner being. I don't know what the truth is. I want to know how. And I always reply to them and say, well, how do you behave with other people? And also not only with them, but psychologically. 
Because when you examine your internal states, and if you find corruption, negativity, desire, that's the problem. And in those moments of observation, you get light, and your divinity will show you what your ego that you must work on most. And it presents itself, and then you, if you see it and catch it in the moment, you say, aha. And you feel joy. That's the greatest joy of the meditator. Because you see a defect, and you say, now I know what this defect is, and I'm going to meditate on it, so it's going to be eliminated. That's how you change your internal states. So that you learn to vibrate with higher laws, and then therefore, when you relate to other human beings, you help them rise to a higher level of being, a higher level of virtue. So that's Islam, when you submit to God. It doesn't mean you bow to the East, but instead it means that in the moment, you refrain from harmful action, harmful thinking, harmful feeling. And you no longer let your sufferings dictate your life. You also have iman, which means faith. And as I mentioned to you, the word pistis means faith. But real faith in the true sense doesn't mean belief. To think or feel something as true without experience or evidence. Real faith is when you have the knowledge and experience of the divine in your consciousness. And therefore you know. There's no theory there. It's very clear. And lastly, there is ihsan, which is a word that relates to the Arabic name hasan, which means beauty. Ihsan means beautiful action. And to act beautifully is to let your being express through you, in which you become the vehicle, the means by which your inner Christ, your inner Buddha, is manifest. So how does this relate to our internal states? Our psychological states, as I mentioned, fluctuate, they change, they churn. And by learning to be observant, we understand how our psychological states shape our existence. When Al-Junaid was asked about the Gnostic, he replied, the color of the water is the color of its container. That is, the nature of the Gnostic, one who knows in meditation, who experiences the truth, is always determined by the nature of his state in a given moment. So moment by moment, we learn to observe ourselves. And that is always something changing and dynamic, nothing static. Because the truth is the unknowable from moment to moment. So as I've been mentioning to you, meditation is the means by over, to overcome the intellect, to use it in its right place, to use it well. This is from uh, Igneous Rose by Some Island of the Yore. He explains what the dialectic of consciousness is, the understanding of the soul. So the reasoning faculty is not something to be discarded completely, but to be utilized well with comprehension, with understanding. We must extract only, we must only extract the golden fruit from reasoning. The golden fruit of reasoning is comprehension. To know without having to think about it. To understand. Comprehension and imagination must replace reasoning. So comprehension is that spark or hunch, that understanding of the causes of suffering. And imagination, as I indicated, is perception. To see. Not only physical imagery, but psychic imagery. Something that's internal. Your internal states. Because when you develop your observation of yourself, you learn to see and taste the different qualities, the nature of our psychological elements. So imagination and uncomprehension are the foundation of the superior faculties of the understanding. So when you learn to meditate, we develop two factors in ourselves. Comprehension is the result of having a serene mind. 
when your intellect is no longer churning with so many uh, negative elements. And imagination is when you, as a consciousness, can see clearly. So when the lake of the mind is serene, you can then perceive and reflect the images of the divine, the sky, the heavens in that lake. So that lake is your mind. If it's churning and if it's rippling with, with violence and anger and prejudice, then the mind is agitated. You can't see clearly. Obviously, we have a day of work. We're full of anger. We feel negative. We can't see clearly psychologically. We're engaged and constricted by that negativity. But through observation of the mind, naturally you're, and not acting on the ego, your defects, the mind settles, develop equanimity. And that's when the images and meditation start to reflect. So when your body is still, relaxed, your mind is calm after a day of self-observation, of reflection, then as you're relaxing and approaching the state of slumber, images appear. As I said, they reflect within our psyche as experiences. That's imagination. The capacity to perceive experiences that are not of a physical type, but of a spiritual type. So imagination and comprehension are the true faculties of our understanding. Serenity and insight. And the Sufis elaborate on this point very beautifully about the nature of insight, the nature of consciousness. Someone who has developed light inside of themselves has insight. To have insight into a nature of any experience, psychologically speaking, or even physically, depends on the depth of our consciousness, the ability to penetrate into the mind. Because as we are now, we tend to be lost in ikasya or pistis, asleep. But someone who develops light is awakening consciousness, understanding. As the Sufis teach, or one who is dead whom we gave new life and a light with which he can walk among men, can he be like one who is in the depths of darkness from which there, he will never emerge? That's from the Quran, uh, verse six, sorry, chapter 6, verse 122. One of the Sufis said that God's words means one whose intellect has died, and so God gave him new life by the light of insight, and whom God gave the light of manifestation and witnessing he is not like one who walks among the people of negligence in his negligence. So this is talking about people who have light and those who don't. So what does it mean to have insight, understanding, comprehension? When we have those experiences, we become filled with inspiration, with peace, with happiness. And therefore we learn to engage in life in a much more dynamic way. But to be negligent is refers to all of humanity, people who don't understand what meditation is, or if they do practice it, they maybe do it once in a while, not consistently. Negligent, negligence means to not elect, to not act. And the purpose of consciousness is to act, to behave in, in upright ways, conscious ways. So those who have, whose intellect have died, meaning they're no longer limited by their mind, they use the mind in its service, those are people who have insight, who develop witnessing, who really can say that I believe in God, that there's no God but God, because they had, in meditation, they had the experience. So those who are witnessing the truth are not like those who, who don't. It's a very clear distinction. So it is also said, if a man's insight, 
his perception, his imagination is sound. He ascends to the station of witnessing. So a technical term referring to, again, leaving the physical body behind. And in the higher dimensions, you unite with your being. Which we'll be explaining in the courses of Kabbalah, specifically. So in meditation, we learn to focus on one thing. Not let the mind get distracted. That's the beginning. Develop serenity. Learn to concentrate. Don't get distracted. Remember what you're doing. The next step is to develop our capacities for perceiving imagery, which we do through exercises like taking a mandala or sacred painting and trying to reconstruct that image in your mind so that you can see it with your imagination. If I ask you to say, if I ask you to think of a cup of water, the image emerges in our mind. We can think about it. We can see it. Not with physical senses, but psychological ones. So that act of being able to perceive imagery is imagination. Some people have called it clairvoyance. That's a very fancy term meant to confuse people, that make people think that they don't have the ability to be conscious. So that's a mistake. Instead, we all have the capacity to imagine, to perceive. And so when you learn to silence the mind, then you can focus on perceiving more clearly, more profoundly. Because when the, mind, the lake of the mind is calm, you can see into the depths of your psyche. That's imagination. And so in our practice of meditation, we learn to silence the mind, and then afterward, try to perceive deeply with our consciousness, an image, a stone, or try to understand a scripture, Many things we can develop our consciousness with. Many purposes of meditation. But most importantly, we learn to comprehend what we perceived in ourselves during the day. So imagination is the ability to go deep in the mind, to understand and perceive all those defects we caught in action on a moment-to-moment basis. And so those who have developed profound insight are able to go very deep into the mind. So Abu Hasin ibn Mansur declared, the one, who possessing, the one possessing insight hits his target with the first arrow he looses. He never turns to interpretation, speculation, or supposition. So someone who really has profound imagination developed in a, simple, in a single practice goes, goes and silences the mind, focuses on that thing without having to rationalize about that object of meditation. So, for example, you take a scene that you, uh, a scene in your day, maybe at work, with your boss, in which you had a certain conversation that provoked a lot of negativity inside of you. You saw perhaps anger, fear, pride, vanity, all those elements surged in that moment, and you caught it, you saw it in yourself. Then at home, what you would do is, Relax your body, relax your mind. Review in your imagination what you went through in that, in that experience. Try to see each ego, each defect in that instant or in those moments of, at work. So someone whose imagination is very profound will not be thinking about, well, I, I'm not sure what this element is or maybe trying to rationalize about it, what we're focusing on. So someone who's concentrating is trying to imagine him or herself in that, in that scene in the day, one doesn't refer to speculation. Don't think or try to speculate about what you saw. Simply look at the facts. 
What did you perceive in yourself? What did you capture? And don't try to interpret it one way or the other, but just look. And the act of looking is the act of understanding. Because then when you don't rationalize about what you're trying to meditate on, the insight emerges spontaneously, profoundly. It's magic. It comes into your mind, and suddenly you say, aha, I understood that anger in that moment. Now by praying to my inner divinity, I can learn to eliminate that fault. So it is also said, and this refers to different levels of meditators, the insight of the seekers is speculation that brings about certainty. And the insight of the Gnostics is a certainty that brings about inner realization. So we're all seekers here. We're beginning, beginning meditators. We may have certain hunches or intuitions about certain religions or traditions or, or about ourselves, things that we want to know more about. However, there's a higher level of being. We seek to prove in our current level of being uh, certain truths contained in religion. But somebody who is agnostic, someone who really awakens a lot of consciousness, they have experiences, and then when they return to their physical body after an experience of dream yoga, they look in the physical world for evidence to confirm and validate what they experienced. I'll give you an example of what this phenomenon is like. I remember many years ago, when I first started Gnosis, this teaching, I was meditating and I had an experience in the dream world where I was shown ten faces, like a, two rows, five images each. I saw mine at the very bottom, the bottom right. And I saw other faces there that were you know, very powerful and divine, especially what was most notable to me was an old man with a very profound countenance, very strong. And all these images are from the Nordic mythology, so different characters, like Votan, father of the gods. And I remember looking in certain books to find out, well, what did I just experience? What did I just go through? And then someone introduced me to the Kabbalah, which is a Jewish mysticism. It's a map of ten spheres. So those ten pictures were really the, the Kabbalah. So I had an experience, and then I read about it in a book later. So the Kabbalah, if you're not familiar, is a map of consciousness from lower levels of experience, matter, energy, and perception to the highest, to the most rarefied, the most divine. And so I saw my being in all those aspects, those tense spheres, and I was at the very bottom, meaning the physical body. So I had that experience, and then I was looking in the books, I'm trying to validate, well, what did I just go through? And then I read about it. So that gives me more faith, especially things that give you a lot of certainty about this knowledge. So our inner divinity is the one who has to create a psychological space within us. This is an image of the last judgment of Christ judging humanity. And it's a symbol. One important symbol is that it relates to our daily meditative discipline. We have to judge ourselves. We have to judge our faults. First, see them. Then when you're meditating, concentrate on a certain event in your day, try to perceive and understand and see the root causes of your afflictions. And by developing comprehension of each fault that you witnessed, you ask for your inner divinity to eliminate, to judge. 
So our inner being is the one who gives us a sense of order in our psychological house. As I said to you, we tend to be afflicted by multifarious elements. So the egotism of our desires is precisely the I, the me, the myself. And so we must clarify that a radical difference exists between the ego and the being. The I, the sense of self we grasp onto, can never establish an order in psychological matters as, in itself, it is the result of disorder. Only the being, the divine, has the power to establish order in our psyche. The being is the being, and the reason for the being to be is to be the being himself. So this is light, presence, intelligence, wisdom, cognizance. Order in the work of self-observation, judgment, and elimination of our psychic aggregates, meaning our defects or desires, gradually becomes evident through the judicious sense of psychological self-observation. So the path of meditation is very specific, very methodical. First, we observe ourselves, get data about our defects. When we see them in a certain experience of life, we go home, we meditate, we judge them. We ask for comprehension, understanding. And by comprehending them, we pray to our inner divinity to eliminate. And that is how by breaking the shells of the ego, we extract consciousness so that the soul is unified with God, with the being. The one who helps establish this order in us specifically is known in the Greek myths as Athena. She is also known as Minerva amongst the Romans. She is the feminine aspect of divinity inside of us, represented in Hinduism as Durga, Kali. She's also known as the Virgin Miriam in Christianity. The word Miriam in Hebrew literally means to raise, to elevate. She is that part of our divinity that elevates us from the depths of despair and our demonic qualities to the very heights. So we work with her every day in our meditative disciplines here. She's the one who helps to eliminate. Notice on her shield she has the Medusa, whose head has been decapitated, because she is the force of divinity in us, that power that gives birth to the divine in us, who eliminates. She's the warrior who aided Odysseus in uh, Greek poems. So if you remember from the, the Odyssey, he returns home from the Battle of Troy after 20 years of being on the sea in order to find that his home has been invaded by suitors trying to marry his wife. They've taken all his food, his crops, his money, his wealth. They've squandered it. It's a symbol of how we have been exiled from our own inner divinity and we return home, we find that our house is a mess with all these defects, these suitors trying to marry Penelope, his soul, his consciousness. We're trying to take everything from him. So who helps him is Athena. Athena is the one who gives that hero the means and the method in order to kill the suitors. So it's a very beautiful poem. I, w- I won't uh, ex- you know, spoil, spoil it if you haven't read it, but it's a very beautiful teaching. And it dis- uh, defines for us the path of elimination. So Athena is our inner divine goddess who is really part of our consciousness. And she's the one who helps us from the very beginning of the path to the end. There's an there's a order to how we eliminate defects. She's the one who establishes that path in us. As we progress in our inner work, we can verify for ourselves an interesting order in the system of elimination. 
One is astonished when one discovers that there is an order in the work related to the elimination of the multiple psychic aggregates that personify our errors. So the word aggregate means pile or heap, conglomeration. So each defect is an aggregate which has trapped our consciousness. What is most interesting about all this is that such an order in the elimination of defects comes about gradually and is processed according to the dialectic of consciousness. The dialectic of reasoning will never surpass the formidable work of the dialectic of consciousness. And this has to do with our daily discipline in which we're learning about ourselves, acquiring more wisdom and knowledge, whereby we understand certain defects emerge in certain situations and we work on them gradually, day by day, until through comprehension and profound works, our defects become pulverized, eliminated. They become small, smaller and smaller and weaker because we're comprehending them until finally the Divine Mother can decapitate them. So the dialectic of reasoning will never surpass the formidable work of the dialectic of consciousness. So the dialectic of consciousness is again your work in which you're comprehending yourself more and more until finally the ego is dead. In time, the facts show us that the psychological order and the work of eliminating defects is established by our own profound inner being. So the very beginning of the path to the very end of self-realization, of enlightenment, is, is guided. Every step, every moment is guided by our inner divinity. And as I mentioned to you, she works in three ways. So the Gnostic esoteric work, the Greek word gnosis meaning knowledge, self-wisdom, understanding, is divided into three sections. So you see an image here of Durga slaying uh, in Hinduism a, uh, a demon, a monster. She's riding upon a lion, which reminds us of the Christian, or the Judeo-Christian tradition of the Lion of Judah, or Yehuda, yod heh vav Jehovah, or also we can say Yeshua, which is a representation of uh, what we call Christ, which is an energy. So she is slaying this element, which is psychological. We have discovery, judgment, and execution. First, we observe ourselves. We gather knowledge about our faults. Then in meditation, we reflect in the screen of our imagination what we experienced, what we saw. So didactically, by focusing on each defect, we learn to comprehend them. And then execution refers to prayer. We pray to our inner divinity to eliminate because we cannot eliminate defects on our own. We need our inner being who is the source of order, of knowledge. And lastly, one thing we'll mention is something that's pertinent to the discussion of this dialectic of consciousness, this self-understanding. It's important to reflect on what we were years ago reflect on who we were, the ways we thought, felt, acted before we were led and inspired to approach this kind of study. What's known as, uh, in this teaching, we talk about what's known as uh, psychological photographs, where when we begin this work, we learn to transform our psyche gradually. And then we reflect after a time upon what we were in the past in terms of a psychological image of who we were before we sought to study any type of knowledge of this type. So it's useful, as Samuel and Vior writes in The Great Rebellion, to uh, reflect on oneself constantly and to analyze what 
are we doing successfully? What are we doing that's wrong? So the establishment of a consecutive order in the, of the different parts of the work related to this extremely serious subject of eliminating the psychic aggregates allows us to generate a work memory. This is quite interesting and even extremely useful in the question of more inner development. So work memory has to do with understanding the process of by which we're working psychologically. So this is something that's developed by practice. We develop a type of understanding and, and comprehension of who we were before we began this work and what we've become now. This work memory can certainly give us distinct psychological photographs of the different stages of our past. As a whole, it will bring to our imagination a vivid and even repugnant Im imprint of what we were before beginning the radical psychotransforming work. There's no doubt that we would never want, wish to return to that horrifying image, that vivid representation of what we once were. From this point, such psychological photography is useful as a means of confrontation between a transformed present and a regressive, stale, clumsy, and unfortunate past. The work memory is always recorded on the basis of psych successive psychological events registered by the Center of Psychological Self-Observation. And again, this myth of Perseus teaches us many things because by using the reflection of our consciousness in the shield, which is the armor of the soul, we learn to work gradually, little by little, on our faults so that by reflecting on, you know, on this process, we develop more stamina, more, more awareness, more inspiration. Do you have any questions? Now, with uh, anger as an emotion, in its true sense, is a frustrated desire. It wants something from the external world or from reality that it can't get. Now, there are certain psychological states which are such as indignation or a sense of um, moral and social, uh, or a sense of moral, that something has been committed that's wrong. Now, naturally, we feel a sense of indignation that this is horrible and that we don't want that to exist. So that type of sentiment is natural. It's a conscious quality where we feel that truly we see the state of humanity and we feel a sense of urgency. The consciousness that really is indignant, that, that sense of severity that says this is wrong, and that this should not be tolerated. But anger is a psychological element. It's something different. Anger is a negative emotion that wants to harm others. But even when people are committing harm, the best way to resolve that is not by responding with anger, but instead, severity. The consciousness doesn't have to be complete. The consciousness is not complacent with wrong. So when there's harm committed, naturally, uh, we can say that 
we should channel the, really the forces of judgment from the being. Because divinity is not just some, says, you know, God loves or is complacent with wrong. Because there's, there's both mercy and justice in divinity. They find their balance within our heart. So naturally feeling a sense of indignation towards what's been going on in the media or, or in the world is natural. And so we should feel driven to want to change that. But doing it with negative emotions, especially when we see how that, if we're observing and seeing how that ego acts and relates to others, it tends to exacerbate the condition rather than resolve it. But instead, you can learn to be patient, not in the sense that you're just tolerating the wrong and letting it continue, but instead you put your foot down and don't allow it. That's judgment. It's a conscious quality. So the consciousness doesn't necessarily have to refer to um, or what we think of the consciousness doesn't mean that, you know, love doesn't, or love does not necessarily mean complacency with wrong. Because when you eliminate anger, you develop true love, which knows how to judge, how to act, how to behave, and how to help others not perpetuate that mistake. Well, that's real judgment. Hope that answers your question. Good. That's an example of the severity of the consciousness of divinity. So God isn't just some figure that punishes humanity blindly, nor is, nor is uh, you know, uh, stupidly compassionate, you can say, or complacent with wrong. Now, when Jesus was throwing uh, the, money, the tables of the moneylenders in the, in the Bible, refers to how we as a psyche, as a consciousness, have to go against the moneylenders in our psyche. So it's a symbol. Because those moneylenders that have prostituted the temple of God is psychological, is inside of us. But you didn't do it out of anger, a human anger at the man sitting in the chair. He wasn't angry, but he was, you know, he was demonstrating something psychological as a parable. It's a sim- something symbolic. Now, psychologically, we have to go into our temple, which is our mind, and to get rid of the moneylenders, those defects that have taken our temple of God, our, our, our psyche, and have polluted it. We have to confront it. Yes? Um, in, in, um, there was a um, passage where um, one of the, I don't remember who, out of Joseph, she says that uh, one must um, experience duty of all of duty, all of duty, and um, vigilance. And I, I, uh, I did not know what vigilance means. I actually googled it, and it says um, observation by fear. And um, that maybe I don't know if that 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 word is uh, this definition is correct. Sure. But um, do you really what what role uh, fear plays uh, in a relationship? In our relationship with God, like um, if that's if um, assuming that I got the right, right definition of the word, like what would be um, place in our relationship? Like sure. how would we put like in in my like religious uh, religious experiences? I never fear God. I fear things uh, without God. And, sure. Uh, but 
So the word awe is a quality of the consciousness. What the Bible is referred to as fear of God has been misinterpreted to mean something egotistical. So like the fear that we typically feel is negative. It really debilitates conscious action. Now, the word awe of duty, in the, in the, if you look at the Judeo-Christian tradition or the Hebrew Bible, you find the word fear of God known as pechad, which means awe, to feel all in reverence. So the word awe is something of the consciousness that feels respect for the divine and its power and respects that, uh, that divinity within him or herself. Because you feel all of duty when you refrain from negative action and negative ways of being. Because you, re- you, re- you realize and you remember that your inner divinity is with you moment by moment, is with you, is a part of you. So to act in negative ways is to infringe on that relationship with your inner, your inner being. That's why one feels an awe, a reverence, because if we're about to get into an argument with someone or something violent or negative, and we refrain from acting in that way, we develop, we're practicing awe of duty. Because the divine is peace, is compassion, is understanding. And to not be observant of divinity in us and our mind and our mind stream and our actions produces suffering. Now the word, uh, it, uh, one thing I'll mention to you too is, you know, the being is with us here and now. Your, your inner divinity is, is always present. But the problem is that we don't have consciousness of that. As the Quran teaches, truly we are closer to you than your jugular vein. This is the divine speaking into the, um, to the words of that prophet. So divinity is with us here and now. And when we feel all of duty, means that we are not acting negatively in certain situations. So that we learn to... Uh, deepen our connection with the truth. Any other final questions or comments? Yes? Yeah, and so Geburah is uh, the qualities of the divine consciousness as we teach it in this tradition. And mercy is the spirit known as chesed or mercy in Kabbalah. So if you go on our website, you can see we've, we've already, we're going to be on the 10th lecture pretty soon. Uh, talks about the tree of life and depth. Uh, so yeah, Geburah is that sense of conscience that says this is right, this is wrong, and is severe in enacting that type of discipline. And the way that we get that strength in ourselves is by meditating. Because the power of Geburah, a judgment, occurs spontaneously in us when we learn to reflect and look within us to see what are our faults, what do we need to change. So that by extracting the consciousness from those elements, we develop true judgment and true mercy. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org.
All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace. Thank you.